and welcome to the Hand in Hand show where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. I'm here with Nancy Weckworth. And we're here with David Karchem, who had his stroke eight years ago. And we're recording a special episode to celebrate his stroke anniversary. We are rolling out this service to help survivors and families to make this anniversary special. If you would like to record your episode, please contact us at https colon backslash backslash handinhandshow.com. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Dave. This is Nancy. Hi, Nancy. So, Dave, just tell us a little bit about your stroke. I understand you had a stroke eight years ago. Did you know you were having a stroke? Were you with family? Did they understand what was happening? No, actually, I was driving my car, which was a stick shift, and I had stopped at an intersection. And I, what I realized is I was having troubles because I couldn't get my left leg onto the clutch. So, you know, I figured the, there was something wrong with my car at the time. And I was sort of halfway through an intersection when I realized this problem. And I was able to follow another car through the intersection and get over to the side of the road. Then I began to black out. And so before I blacked out, I wrote a note that said, uh, call 911, and I put it on my dashboard. And then um, a little while later, I was able to sort of wake up enough to be able to use my telephone. And so I called on my cell phone and I asked for help. And they kept asking me where I was. And I kept saying, I'm a plumber in Tampa. And they kept, they said, we don't understand you. So it took them a while until somebody got to me. And then finally, I was lucky enough that, um, that they called the paramedics. They realized what the problem was. The paramedics came and got me out of my car and took me to the emergency hospital. Wow. That's kind of scary to know that you were driving at that time, but how smart of you to put the note on your dashboard, but I guess nobody stopped to see that you were okay or what was going on. I'm not aware of anybody stopping. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, a, um, once the people were there uh, that I had called, um, there was a policewoman who came by and she, direct, she was an off-duty policewoman. She directed traffic around me and got my car over to the side completely because I hadn't made it quite parallel to the curb. I was sort of sticking out in traffic a bit. Well, that makes it even more interesting that nobody would stop and check on you, or if they did, they kept going, I guess. But when we talk about stroke anniversary, some people may think that we're like having this big celebration of celebrating a stroke anniversary is not necessarily what people might think. It's celebrating, I think, that we lived, that we continue to move forward, our journey, you know, the whole bit. So what are you going to be doing to celebrate this stroke anniversary? Well, I'm lucky in that I, uh, I generally spend some of the time with my grandchildren and my children. And so that's I'm always the best. In the sense that I get to, uh, to see how far they've uh, come in these uh, last eight years. Absolutely. So, in your recovery, what do you think was the most difficult challenge for you? 
overcoming the healthcare system because typically, um, I hate to say it, but most physical medicine doctors, uh, they look at you and they say, oh, well, this person will probably never recover. And therefore, um, I think that my physical medicine doctor expected me to be in a wheelchair watching daytime television the rest of my life. And he just, uh, you know, he would not approve very many things for my therapy. But I was very lucky that I had gotten the neurologist to send me to a rehabilitation hospital as opposed to just a nursing home facility. Because a week after my stroke, I had another blood clot behind my unaffected side, right knee. They discovered it and they were able to remove that blood clot. Blood clots are what caused my original stroke. So I was very lucky that I was at a hospital where they uh, were testing properly for things. I then had the, uh, like I said, uh, the physical medicine doctor that I had did not approve very many therapies, but the physical therapist and the occupational therapists, they decided that I needed more things, and so they provided a lot of positive benefits to me, including I also had speech-language therapy. Okay. I think that that's a great point that you pointed out, that the system is the hardest thing, uh, a challenge for a lot of us. I know I was fortunate in my recovery and that all my physicians were very positive and sent me to uh, a rehab hospital and sent me for outpatient therapy, which I was able to do for about a year. But many can't do that or the insurance won't cover it. And you have all these fights during this time when you should be able to be working on your recovery. And you're devoting most of your energy to just trying to get basic help. Right, exactly. So did you have any like memorable moments after your stroke? whether funny things or serious, what parts of your recovery and and your stroke are memorable? Well, actually, I saw my then um, three-year-old granddaughter. She decided on her own that uh, the kind of therapy I need is to move it, which it turns out is very good therapy, even though it was never attempted by the OTs. And, uh, And so she took my hand and she sort of shook it up and down and sideways. And I began to get some minor feeling in my arm at that point when she did that. Okay. And she was just being a three-year-old playing, but it turned out to be the right thing. Yeah, kids can do things and you don't even know that it's going to help or, or anything. I just, I found it rather interesting that your granddaughter just grabbed your hand automatically and shook it and and that seemed to help. Were you able to continue on with that feeling that she initiated? Has has that, you felt that that was a critical point, turning point at all in your therapy with that arm? Well, actually, um, if you look at it, it took uh, seven years and nine months after my stroke uh, when I began to get some minor return in my fingers my, my left hand and my wrist, some volitional control. And, um, and my feeling is that I should have had that kind of uh, especially, essentially uh, basic therapy during the entire time. But I had very minimal outpatient therapy uh, that really, uh, after about a year, I started paying for my own um, OT appointments and um, 
which, as you know, are very expensive but very worth it. And over the years, I began to, um, to learn to do various kinds of therapies on my own. Yeah, I agree. That's what John and I did. We ended up, um, John got like 10 days of therapy in hospital. And then um, they dumped him in a sniff and left him there for 30 days. And then they dropped him on my door and said, here. And I ended up hiring private therapists for a long, for many years. Yeah. In order, in order to get him so that he could function at all because he was non-functioning when they sent him home. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I found is that, um, you know, every time I talk to a therapist about things like, um, through my HMO about things like, uh, you know, I'm, I was having trouble with my vision and yet, uh, about a year and a half, about almost a year and a half after my stroke, I, uh, decided that I needed to start to, to learn to drive again. But before I could do that, I needed to work on my vision because I had some vision deficits from my stroke. Well, they said that, um, that, you know, I started looking up things about trying to find research about vision therapy. And of course, the, um, the uh, neuro-ophthalmologist at my HMO says, no, they're a bunch of charlatans. They don't do any good for you. And she then bragged about the fact that even the Harvard website didn't show, doesn't think that they're worth it. So that night after talking with her, I went home and I found 116 references on the Harvard website to the benefits of vision therapy. And I sent it to her. She never had the courtesy to respond. But I started then looking for my own uh, tools and techniques that I could use, which I did find on the internet. and I. I was able to purchase them at a very reasonable price, which helped me basically deal with them. Um, I had a startle reflex from uh, my peripheral vision, and it also helped me with, with depth perception. So I was able to, to work on both of those things, which are obviously very necessary if you're going to drive a car again. For sure. And, um, it, Everybody it all, else on the road with you thanks you for their work. Yeah. Well, it also is necessary if you want to walk down a hallway, not bump into things. And if you walk outside, you need to be able to judge distances mm -hmm. and objects. I discovered another simple thing as I got more and more into research projects was um, I had a condition that it's called visual agnosia, which means when you look at something, your brain doesn't recognize what it is. An example is if somebody says, go into your pantry and get a lid for a container. Well, I could, they could be stacked up right in front of me and my brain wouldn't register that they're there. It's not a vision problem, it's a brain problem, a brain comprehension processing problem. So, um, so I had to learn techniques for dealing with that, such as when I want to go look for a can lid, I have to say, well, it's round or square or rectangular, and it's either green or blue or yellow or clear. And then, amazingly enough, I could find things. Well, that's very necessary if you're out in public and let's say you're driving a car and you need to be able to recognize other cars and objects such as people walking, dogs and cats, uh, motorcycles, bicycle riders, pedestrians. So, you know, there's a lot of things that you learn over time that you have to do on your own, basically. 
Yeah, you've been working closely with the University of Southern California Stroke Program. How did you find them? Give us a little information about what they are. Well, originally I was invited to participate in a stroke technology uh, seminar that uh, based on my previous employment, I had been involved in the software industry for almost 30 years. So when I started participating in this seminar, I then was invited to participate in more activities at USC. Actually, I attribute a lot of what I did at USC to my rehabilitation because of all the stimulation of different ideas and talking to people, learning new techniques about things. I became a volunteer for their for their physical therapy training program. And also, a, I do the same thing at Cal State Northridge, which has a physical therapy department. And by volunteering, I basically got the interaction with the professors and the students, and I learned a lot of new techniques for how to uh, improve my walking gait and how to maintain balance. All that stimulation I, I attribute to what's re helped my brain recover. So over the years, I've been volunteering there at USC, and then I started as a, as, a, as a volunteer patient for physical therapy training. But then I began to uh, participate as a researcher in some of the laboratories, helping with actually some of the, developing some of the protocols for some of the research projects, as well as evaluating uh, how the research would be of benefit to a stroke survivor. Okay. What do you see as major challenges with local support groups? They basically are too limiting in the sense that most people start to participate in them, and they either meet weekly or monthly, but then the problem becomes you have a doctor's appointment or some other activity that happens at the same time, and you cannot physically be there. A lot of people have trouble with uh, the driving, get the transportation to and from or they live too far away from it. Let's say they live 50 to 100 miles away from where the support group meets. And those are things that prevent people from being able to actively participate. So being involved with computer technology for many years, I looked around for ways to get involved where we could use computers like, like we're doing now to participate so that people could be part of the group even if they live 100 miles away, they can still actively be involved. And it's that active involvement that's the key. Keeping your mind busy and keeping your social interactions going. And you also learn a lot from other survivors. Absolutely. I'm a huge supporter of our support groups. Um, I think they can be very helpful, but I do find that it's difficult for people to get there sometimes. Or, you know, the time's just not convenient for someone. But also some people, if it's important to them, they will make the time and, and figure it out, no matter how difficult it is, especially if they've been a couple of times and are starting to make the connections. As far as stroke focus goes, how did you find out about us? Well, actually, um, Daniel and I began to work on a... Uh, on a research project through USC dealing with mindfulness. So I thought it was a great idea and it solved the, many of the problems that I see with the local support groups. So I sort of latched onto it and said, what can I do to help? 
how that stroke picnic went the last weekend that you were down there at, in the Orange County. How was it? It was very interesting. They had about, about 30 to 40 different vendors there. And when I say vendors, I don't just mean that they were people uh, selling products. In some cases, it was, the, well, the, there's actually a coordination between Chapman College, UC Irvine, and the Orange County Stroke Network. They, for, they were one of the groups there. And what they do is they're trying to encourage people to participate in various uh, support groups. And they really, when I was talking to them about why do they lose so many people who participate in support groups? Because there's so few, really. The average group has maybe 20 to 25 people who are active. And yet there's thousands of people who've had strokes that are not participating. And they said the biggest problem that they have is keeping people informed and up-to-date as to what's new in the technology. Almost everybody asked me the question, not just, um, not just from there, but from other places. People say, well, what's in it for me? Well, what's in it for me is that, um, that you get the mental stimulation and you learn about new things and you keep your brain active. And if you do that, that's what I attribute most of my rehabilitation to, is keeping involved. And, and uh, you know, I'm very lucky that over the last eight years since my stroke, I've seen the birth of eight grandchildren. You know, I'm able to keep in touch with them via, like, Skype and, and FaceTime and, and using uh, Zoom and other tools. I have grandchildren that live in Boston in Orange County. And so I'm able to keep in contact with them on a regular basis, which is important for both them and me. Yes, that family and friends, it's um, a really good opportunity um, to always be in contact with them. Um, so what would you say to people who maybe have just had a stroke? Well, you have to take control of your own life. You need to be your own self-advocate, and you need to not accept when somebody says no, that if you think you can do something or accomplish something, that you then push yourself, and you say, yes, I'm going to do it, and you find a way to make it happen, and not take no for an answer. That's great advice. It, it truly is because even a regular situation where someone has not had a huge life-altering medical uh, something happen, you still need to take control. A doctor isn't always correct and your care needs to work for you. And I work in the medical field and administrative part of it. I see that, that there are many people that don't take that control and that's huge. When your people are doing their rehabilitation. Even though a therapist says do X, you need to do X plus whatever else you need to add to it to make it happen. Yes. You know, I found other things that I could do that would supplement my therapies. That is huge in continuing to make progress. Even now for me, and I don't know about you this far, but I still make progress, but I try different things and keep moving. That's my big thing is just keep moving, keep well, going, keep finding different milestone things. milestone that occurred about the same time that I began to get a little bit of volitional control of my fingers and wrist on my left hand. I also, for the first time in roughly 
seven years after my stroke, began to get my sense of smell and taste back. And I've discovered how good food tastes and how good things smell. And um, yes. was, uh, that was almost eight years post-stroke. So in other words, your brain develops over time. Not everything happens in the first 90 days or six months. It takes time sometimes for a part of the brain to be stimulated and something to happen again. Yes, absolutely. So again, thank you so much for being with us. Happy stroke anniversary, and I hope you. you have a bit of fun celebrating. And again, I do invite you to come back because I think you have some more things that you can tell us about your recovery and some different things. But um, Nancy and I thank you and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Ditto, and I uh, look forward to listening to what other people have to say about their stroke adversities. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Hand in Hand Show. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to keep the discussion going, please join Stroke Focus, the social media website dedicated to stroke survivors and caregivers. Stroke Focus is S T R. O-K-E-F-O-C-U-S. Stroke Focus is a part of Wohala, which in Mandarin means I have survived. If you wish to be a part of the show or would like to be interviewed as part of the show, please contact us at contact at strokefocus.net.